Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Our guest is EvoFem Biosciences founder and CEO, Sandra Pelletier. Sandra was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer while her company was conducting phase three clinical trials on Fexi, a non-hormonal contraceptive gel for women. She describes herself as a mother, daughter, CEO, and trailblazer. She has more than two decades of experience of executive leadership at companies and nonprofits focusing on women's health. Sandra joins us today to talk about leading a company while being treated for breast cancer, as well as why a non-hormonal type of birth control like Fexi is needed. Sandra, welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me. So if you are comfortable, I don't want you to talk about anything you're not comfortable with, but if you're comfortable, could you share the details or some of the details of your diagnosis and treatment? Like, did you find the lump yourself? Was it found by a screening mammogram? What were the characteristics of the cancer and your treatment? Yeah, no, I'm very happy to, by the way. And so, and I've been in women's health my whole career, so I might be too comfortable. So say TMI, Sandra, stop it. We don't need to know about that. But but for me, I'm sure for everyone, the shock was so significant because I have no family history of breast cancer. I have no genetic predisposition. I had a clean mammogram the year before. And so I was under the impression that I was in very good physical health. And based on my daily behavior as well and how I felt, I thought, everything was fine. However, my whole life, I have always consistently been told I had fibrocystic breasts. Every time I go, I have fibrocystic breasts, I have fibrocystic breasts. And so anytime I did my own breast exams, I couldn't really tell because I had fibrocystic breasts. So I didn't know what was going on in there. And every time I went, I had a clean mammogram. So I assumed, well, I don't know, I guess I'm fine. The short answer is I did not find it myself. And I started having vaginal bleeding for no reason. And after my son was born, I have one child. I um, had a endometrial ablation because I had such severe and heavy bleeding always my whole life with my periods. So I hadn't had a period in 10 years. So to all of a sudden start vaginally bleed, it was very rare and unusual. So when I went in to be examined, my OBGYN said, we should just test everything. You know what? Let's just test it all. Let's go in and have your mammogram early. I wasn't supposed to have a mammogram for three more months. So I went in and I said to the woman, I have fibrocystic breasts. Don't worry. I'm sure you're going to think you see things and there's probably nothing there. I have fibrocystic breasts. And so that's how it was determined. And she then, you know, I got a call and they said, even though we know you have fibrocystic breasts, we think there's something more than that and you need to have a biopsy. And when I went in for my biopsy, the behavior of the doctor doing the biopsy and the nurse was very unusual. They behaved in a way that made me nervous. Um, It was almost like they knew something that they thought they shouldn't say at that point. And then finally, when I got the call, I, I really, I really did this. I because I've been in healthcare my whole life, and I know that there are honest mistakes that happen all the time. There's lots of paperwork. There's lots of mix-ups. And when my doctor called and said, you need to take care of this immediately, you have aggressive 
we think late stage cancer. We want you to know that we need you to make appointments immediately. And as she started talking and as I was no longer listening because my mind was going wah, 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 I said, hold on just a second. I promise you that I won't tell anybody, but I know that this is one of those times when you've mixed up the patient charts and no one needs to know. No one needs to know, but it, this is not my diagnosis. And she said to me in that second, like without even missing a beat, that kind of denial is going to kill you, Sandra. Oh, wow. And I thought that was like being pistol whipped. I was just like, wow. So it was very, very shocking. And then, you know, what immediately followed was three weeks later, I had a double mastectomy followed by six months of chemo, of cytotoxin and taxotier. And then they said that they were so worried that my cancer was so aggressive that I needed, it was prudent to have my ovaries and my uterus removed. So I did that. So I started my treatment in August, but I did very aggressively say to my oncologist, I need to treat this like killing a fly with a sledgehammer. I don't want to be subtle. I want this to go as fast as possible. I want to be as aggressive as possible. I want to do everything I can at the speed of light. I can take it. I think my body can take it. My mind can take it. And I don't want to wade into the water. I want to take off all my clothes. I want to dive in nude off the deep end. And that's what we did. And so it was aggressive and it was very condensed time frame because it was aggressive, but I'll stop being so verbose, but I did get three total opinions before I decided to go forward with my treatment team. And the opinions were unbelievably different. None of them were similar, right? As well, it was interesting that one group wanted me to start in a clinical study. They thought I should start in a clinical study that I should participate in new treatment. Maybe this new immunotherapy might be useful. It would shrink my tumor. Then I would have surgery after the clinical study And then I had another doctor say that I should just remove one breast and have reconstruction. And I didn't need to do anything with the other breast because as far as they could tell, it wasn't in my lymph node. It hadn't spread to my other breasts. And then finally, I wanted to kill a a fly with a sledgehammer, as I said. So the doctor in the group that I chose to go with said, look, we, we understand that you are very actively engaged in this process. We get that you want to be aggressive. And I said, I want to have a double mastectomy. I'm not the kind of person that can be thinking about this every minute of every day. In general, I just, that's what I do. I overanalyze and overthink, and I have to believe that I have done everything that I can. And I want a double mastectomy period. And she said, I understand. And after my surgery, by the way, my cancer had spread into my right breast. Mm. The surgeon did say to me, thank goodness you chose a double mastectomy because otherwise we would be right back here again in short order because your cancer was in your right breast. And I kept thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you know, and I just did that because my style in general is I am, if I love you, I love you. And if I don't, I don't. Right. I said, let's just skip all the superficial nicety. Let's just get married. Let's go right to intercourse. Shall we? So I did that with my cancer, you know? And so, but think about if I hadn't, and I think about these women who they just, they, they, they haven't spent their careers in healthcare, right? Right. They, Mm -hmm. they, they, they think about things differently. And, and so it just, 
my whole time and even now, I worry. I worry for other women because I know that it's so incredibly hard and there's so many different opinions and all smart people, but different opinions nonetheless. I'm assuming that the treatment team that did not recommend double mastectomy was not also recommending having your ovaries and uterus removed too, which could have been an issue. I mean, it sounded like they were just being very conservative and only recommending having a single mastectomy. Correct. Absolutely correct. They okay. were conservative all the way around in the entire protocol. Yes, that is a, definitely a correct assumption. Okay. And I'm assuming it sounds like from your treatment, the cancer was triple negative. Is that correct? Or meaning it was hormone receptor negative, HER2 negative, um, or was no, it positive for it something? It was positive. It was positive. Oh, yeah. so then did you take hormonal therapy after um, surgery and chemo then? Anti-estrogen. Yes. Yep. So I'm, okay. I'm taking anti-estrogen now every day for 10 years. Okay. Yes. Okay. So you are the long-term. Okay. You said you wanted the most aggressive treatment possible. That's part of your style. Did the fact that, you know, you were in these phase three clinical trials with, with FACSI at the time, and did anything else play into it besides it being your style? Yes. Two things played into it. My whole career, I have been in women's health, but my whole career, I have been working my way up the corporate ladder to get to a seat that was the final decision maker. And the reason why is it was not about power. It was about freedom and change and benevolence. And what I mean by that is that I don't think I'm so, oh, I'm such a good person. I'm holier than thou. It's because I have been in male dominated environments in corporate America my whole life. And I did not feel that women got a fair shake. I didn't feel that equality existed. I didn't feel that we met women where they were. I know that when you give women a chance to run their personal life, their families and their kids, and you throw them a bone, they will work harder and longer for you all night, all weekend. I wanted to be the CEO so that I could make better, emotionally intelligent, emotionally centered corporate culture changes. And the only way you can do that, by the way, is when you're the boss. And so my whole life, I worked to get to this spot of not just running a company, but running a company for and about women and a company that was about to bring, in my opinion, the biggest innovation in this contraceptive category in decades. And then as crazy as this is, I have to tell you, I mean, Jamie, imagine this, that I end up being the CEO that's bringing the only non-hormonal birth control to the market. And when women have cancer, most times they can never use a hormone again. And the serendipity, the craziness of that. And you know what I felt like is that sometimes what you choose chooses you. And I, I was at this place where I met this doctor who said to me that when men go in for treatment for prostate cancer, one of the things they very first ask is how is it going to impact their sexuality and their intimacy with their partner? And this woman oncologist said to me, can you imagine if a woman being treated for breast cancer said, now, how are these treatments going to affect my sexuality? We would think, what's wrong with her? She should be worried about saving her life. What is she, some promiscuous woman who like goes out on the town every day? So there's still inequality, even in the way we treat cancer patients. And so I thought, look, what women want or what I wanted after conquering cancer was I wanted my life back. I loved the life that I had and I wanted it back. 
And for some women, maybe that includes having an intimacy with their partner. Maybe it doesn't. But if it does, think about this. Anti-estrogen, I talked to another woman and she said it's like the Sahara Desert, right? All of your, you're just dry everywhere. And vaginal dryness and bleeding and pain with intercourse is real. And our product, by the way, is lubricating. And it is a gel that has no hormones. And I thought, wow. So yes, and I'm sorry. So yes, I wanted to kill a fly with a sledgehammer because I, it's my style, but I wanted to get back to running this company. And the other thing that was even more important than that is that I'm a single mother of a boy who is 14. And even though I am friends with his dad and my ex, um, I, friends is one thing, him being the raiser of my son. Yeah, not so much. So I knew I'm trying to raise a feminist and a gentleman, and I'm convinced that no one can do that better than me. And I need to be around to do it. And, you know, he's special sauce, you know? So anyway, so it was for him and it was for this love of this company I have. Okay. And I, I do want to ask you more detailed questions about, about Fexi later, but I'm curious, do you think breast cancer changed you at all? It forever changed me. It has forever changed me because I now take the shortest distance between A and B. I always feel like I'm out of time. I used to be long-term and strategic and look around the corner. And I used to plan out three and four and five year strategic plans. And now I've thrown that all out the window. If it's going to be done, why not do it now? If we want to go, why don't we go now? We want to go on that trip. Why don't we just take it? So it's made me, I've never been impulsive. I've always been a little bit too responsible, which is a little boring. And now I'm, now I'm less responsible, meaning I, I do a lot more fun things and I do them a lot more often, but I also am much more straight with people. I've always believed in direct communication, but I now say exactly what I mean all the time. You never have to guess what I'm thinking. And it's not to be kind or unkind, frankly, it's just to be candid and truthful and authentic. And I, I'm very decisive now and I don't mince my words. And I also, after cancer, decided to get out of a very long-term relationship that I was in, that I kept, I kept tricking myself to think that it was going to change. And after cancer, I realized the only way it's going to change is if I change it and end it. And so, you know, I did a lot of changing and I'm a lot happier now, but if I had not had cancer, I wouldn't have had the courage. I don't think to make those kinds of dramatic changes. Okay. Now you worked all through this very aggressive treatment, uh, no leave of absence, uh, at your company, EvoFem. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Was it what you expected? Um, I know, you know, you were getting, doing these clinical trials, getting ready to launch a product. What did the shareholders think? What did other people in the company think? Did you, I mean, did you tell them how, how did that play out? Because I know we hear from a lot of our visitors that it's a struggle to go through treatment and keep up with work. And not all those people that are saying this are CEOs of a company. So I got to imagine that was kind of tough. It was really tough. It was perhaps the toughest thing that I have done. And it was the toughest thing that I've done because I 
had to become an Academy Award-winning actress. And even though I believe in radical transparency, when you're sick like that, it hurts the heart of people. You can see it on their faces. They feel sorry for you because they're kind human beings. And I didn't want that. I didn't want their pity and I didn't want their sadness. And so you fake it, you fake it. And I, I don't regret faking it, but I faked it. I faked it for my mother. I faked it for my son. I faked it for my team. I faked it for everybody um, except for me. And I, I, I really would take a couple of showers a day. It was the only time I could actually be at peace by myself with the bathroom door shut in the shower and just say, wow, I feel really terrible <laughs> and, and just feel terrible by myself. And then I would get up and purposely shake it off. And, and I have to be honest, it wasn't that I was trying to be super tough. It was that it was easier and better and it helped the mindset of everybody that I knew I was going to beat cancer. I knew it. And I just, it helped everybody else believe it, which I do think created a much more positive energy and momentum, frankly. But the one thing about my staff that I did differently, anything outward facing, I definitely put on a, a pretense, no question. However, with my internal staff, I did not. Now, I didn't say I felt bad. But what I loved is that I called a meeting with everybody and the lawyers advised me that I shouldn't tell all the shareholders until I was at my last treatment because they might worry that things might go wrong and I should wait till I was done treatment. But I brought the whole staff together and I said, look, here are the facts. Here's my diagnosis. Here's my treatment. Here's what's going to happen. I'm staying. I'm coming in. If I can't handle it, I promise you I will not. I respect and love this company too much. If I can't do it, I will not do it. I will step aside. But in the interim, we're not going to talk about it. We're not giving cancer any airtime. We're not discussing it. I don't want to discuss it with you. I'm going to assume that you care about me. That's great, but it's going to be business as usual. And no matter how I look and how I act, we're going to act like it's normal. And everybody said, okay. And I think it took pressure off of them too. Do you know what I mean? Like, Everybody acted normal. I came in with less and less hair. Finally, I was bald. You know, I weighed 100 pounds and everybody acted normal. They were amazing, by the way. Amazing. The people here at MOFM are great, but everybody acted normal. And um, it made it so much better for me. It was actually, you know, when you can't look in the mirror, you don't know. I mean, you're kind of like, oh, I seem fine. So I did tell them the honest truth. But, but it was, it was hard. What was hard was that I worried that there were hidden and secret perceptions that my weakness was going to bleed into the company's success and the company's progress. And that how could I really be making the right decisions as a leader when I had my mortality in question and when I must have felt physically bad. And, and I really mean what I'm going to say at the risk of sounding crazy here. I think women carry such an incredible burden all the time for their significant others and their kids and their parents and their husband's parents. I think there are women that every day don't have cancer that feel as much pressure and feel as bad as I did in the throes of it. 
And I, I kind of really thought to myself, you know what? There's a lot of women that go through stuff just as bad, if not worse, and they hold a nerve and nobody even knows because they don't lose all their hair and lose a hundred pounds. And, you know, I, that made it better for me that I was one of many of these warriors that are women who are badass, who power through it and just get stuff done. And so that's how I didn't feel sorry for myself. You know, I would say like, look, get over yourself. You know, don't cry for me, Argentina. Get up and put on your clothes and go to work. And, and, and I kind of like that side of myself. Do you know what I mean? Like, get over yourself, honey. You know, a lot of people have had a lot worse situations than you. And so it, I, I, it worked for me. So that must have taken an incredible amount of strength to, to do that. Do you think of yourself as a strong person? Like I've talked to other people and they say, I didn't think I was strong. And then this happened to me and somehow I just found it. But it kind of goes along with your, your thought that there are women going through this crazy thing and nobody even knows because they're just dealing with it. I won't go too far down this, but where I started in life was this place that is literally the furthest point you can fly to from where I live now in the United States. It's called Caribou, Maine. It's the northernmost city in the U.S. It's on the border of New Brunswick, Canada. And I would tell you, I came from a very shockingly meager beginning. And my mother had 12 brothers and sisters. She grew up on a farm with outdoor plumbing. And I was raised... And a lot of people say, you know, from the school of hard knocks, well, I want to tell you, it was the school of hard knocks. And I always did think I was tough. I was raised to be tough. I was tough when I was little because I had to be. And tough was my survival mechanism. And tough is what got me out of caribou. Very few people left. Very few people moved on. And my mother, without question, would say to me, even when I was young and something would go wrong, I can always remember this. If I was really sad and it was home at night and something happened to me, she would say, do you think that they are sitting at home thinking about you? And I'd say, no. Well, then why are you sitting at home thinking about them? Does that seem like a good use of your time? Well, I don't think so. And she'd say, you have one day. And tomorrow morning you wake up and you shake this off. You have one day to be sad, that's all, one day. Can you imagine you're five years old and you think, what? So we only got one day to be sad about whatever it was, you just get one day and then you gotta move on the next day. And so I was raised to be tough and I did think of myself as tough, I did. And the day after my diagnosis, I really did say to myself in the mirror, I looked in the mirror and said to myself, cancer, although it does not discriminate, it will knock on any door. It is going to rue the day it knocked on this door. It got lost. It is definitely mistaken and it, it definitely knocked on the wrong door. And if anybody's going down here, it's cancer. It's not gonna be me. You know, I really decided right then but that's also when I started my aggressive search on everything that I could do to have a good quality of life, right? Both Eastern and Western, right? I wasn't just going to do what the doctor said. I was going to do everything all the time, every day 
to do everything that I could in my power to get that. Okay. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to ask you about Fexi now, which I believe was originally called Amphora, if that's correct. So where did the idea for this type of non-hormonal contraceptive gel come from and how was it developed? How does it work? So originally it was developed by Rush University in Chicago. And at the time when it was developed, which was in the early 80s, there were a number of academic institutions across the country trying to figure out a way for HIV prevention. That was the original origin of this particular gel. What Rush University discovered is that the combination of L-lactic acid, so not lactic acid, L-lactic acid, citric acid, and potassium bitartrate, not only would provide benefit against pregnancy, so contraception, but it also had these microbicidal properties that would help in the prevention of chlamydia, the prevention of gonorrhea, when combined with another product, could have HIV prevention, it could look at herpes prevention, HPV. This asset is really extraordinary because you can continue to invest in it, do clinical studies and life cycle manage the brand, but how it works for contraception and how it works for the investigational study we're doing for the prevention of chlamydia and gonorrhea is incredibly simple, actually. So a normal vaginal pH is 4.5, is 3.5 to 4.5. So 3.5 to 4.5 is most women. So what happens when semen enters, that pH goes up to seven or eight and you become pregnant. Same thing when chlamydia enters, gonorrhea enters, your pH rises, that's how you get infected. Well, our product, Fexi, is acid buffering. So those three ingredients combined, what it, all it does quite simply is help the vagina maintain its natural acidic level of 3.5 to 4.5, which makes the sperm immobile which makes it kill the pathogens for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Now, however, here's what's special and here's what is the trade-off. What's special is that it's on demand. So you only use it when you have sex. You put it in right before sex or within an hour, anytime within that hour window, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes, or literally right before sex. The applicator is very simple, small, elegant, discreet. Many women have used tampons. You literally insert the applicator, put in the gel, take the applicator out, throw it away. It takes 10 seconds to put it in. That is the benefit. When I say that's the benefit, I say sex on demand. Men have had condoms forever. Men can go out with a condom in their pocket. They can protect themselves from getting a woman pregnant, protect themselves from STDs. Women have been asked and told and trained, you should take a pill every day of every week of every month year after year after year after year. You should put an IUD in your uterus. You should have hormones being released in your body synthetically every day. Now, you and I, we don't need contraception right now when we're talking to each other. So why do you have to put a synthetic hormone in your body every day? And most women do not have sex every day. Market research says women have sex on average twice a week. So the beauty is that this is on demand and women have the power of not suffering from hormonal side effects. However, the trade-off that I say is that, and I know this is Captain Obvious, but you have to use it for it to work. It's on demand. So every time you have sex, you have to use it. And now I don't think it's a trade-off at all. I think it's an amazing blessing. I think it's absolutely wonderful. 
However, there are some women that say, I want a fit and forget method. I don't want to think about it. And I say, okay, great. Well, this is not for you. I totally understand. No problem. But I can tell you that there's 23 million women in the U.S. right now that say, you know what? I've tried pills and patches and IUDs and I have suffered and the suffering is real. And a lot of women suffer in silence and they say, look, I don't have hormones in my milk. I don't have it in my meat. You know, if chickens can be hormone free, why can't I be hormone free? So for me, I think this is the biggest innovation in decades. And I think it's so empowering that women don't have to suffer when they don't even need this to save their life, right? They don't need contraception to save their life. Why would they take it every day? Do you have to use it before sex or can you use it right after? It has to be used before. Okay. So yeah, so it's designed semen to product ratio. So each applicator is five milliliters of product. So it has to be used before. So then it stops the mobility of the sperm. So if used after, it won't be effective. It has to be used right before. Okay. Within an hour. Now it's a prescription product. And I'm curious why that is because the ingredients to me, not a non-scientist, sound non-prescription-y if, if I can say that. <laughs> um, so I, I'm curious why it's a, why it's prescription. Yeah, I, have to, I agree with you. The ingredients are so safe. So here's really why. For two reasons. One, under the Affordable Care Act, ACA, in the United States, when Obamacare was established, what was stated is that one product in every category of contraception would get covered and women would have zero out-of-pocket pay. Zero. So being a prescription in the category of contraception meant Women were getting it for free. So over the counter, they would have to pay. However, let me tell you the dirty little trick that's happened to us. So we assumed, because we have brought this incredible innovation to market, we assumed that particularly for the 800,000 women that get diagnosed with cancer, we assumed that the Office of Women's Health would definitely give us our own category and they would do that right out of the gate. Well, it was during COVID. So they said, look, we've got COVID. We have too many other things. We have too many things on our plate. We can't worry about this. It's not like you're saving lives, you know, so we can't do this, but we will. We just can't do it right now. Well, our product was approved a year ago. So we have now, we've activated senators. We've activated Congress people. We've activated advocacy groups. We've activated Erin Brockovich. Seriously, Erin Brockovich, her daughter is on Fexi and we now are saying, look, you are preventing vulnerable women from getting access to the only non-hormonal product that they use on demand. This no longer makes sense. Enough of this, right? COVID is dissipating. So it's prescription because once we get our own category, every woman will get it at zero copay. Right now, only 55% of the women get it because we have only 55% coverage through managed care. However, we do have a patient assistance program that gets women to only pay up to $30. So we offer that now. But the reason it was prescription is because of the Affordable Care Act. And the FDA really believed that because it's on demand. So in the study, one of the number one reasons for failure was a failure to reapply with the second act of sex. So if women used it at eight o'clock at night and had sex, they believed, well, they already had some there. So if they had sex two hours later, they didn't reapply. And just like a condom, every time you have sex, you have to use it. So they believed, as we agree, that the interface with the doctor would help women 
understand the protocol. You have to use it every time. It's on demand, just like a condom. So, so that was the other reason why we wanted it to be prescription at first. Now, do I eventually think it'll be over the counter? Yes, I really do. I think it will eventually go to over the counter because it's so safe. There's no reason that it shouldn't. But I do think for the first three to five years, maybe less than that, but at least three or four years, it will stay prescription, you know, because of that. Okay. So it's interesting to me that the office said, well, you're not saving lives because as you well know, and we talked about the irony before, anybody who's been diagnosed with breast cancer is told to use non-hormonal birth control. You know, that could be very detrimental to someone's life if they use hormonal birth control and they've had breast cancer. That blows my mind, first of all. And I guess I'm wondering, can you confirm, like, if somebody's been diagnosed with breast cancer is, you know, can you just tell me, like, this is truly safe? Yes, I can tell you it is truly safe. And and I can tell you this. We just did a partnership with a group called ENCODA. ENCODA, their whole purposeful design is to educate pharmacy groups and oncologists on what are the right products that can be used concomitantly with whatever therapy they're on, whether they're an active treatment and chemo, whether they're on post-treatment medications, right? You wanna make sure you can feel good about using something that's not gonna interact with these other medications that these women are on. And, And we purposely put together this whole protocol and explanation about why this is the right and the safe product to use for your cancer patients. And so I feel like you do. I am honestly, and of course you would think I am because I'm the CEO of this company, but as a woman, as a human, I'm confounded that a group called the Office of Women's Health is not going to give a category. And then I said, okay, even if you don't do it for the other women, do it for the cancer patients, the 800,000 cancer patients. And then I said, but then again, you know, if they have daughters, they don't want their daughters using hormones either. It seems so hard to understand that they won't just do it. So we tried the civilized way, by the way, to appeal to them. And now I'm not going to lie. I've said, listen, the civilized way is not working. We're going to have to scream from the rooftops. And that's why I said we need to get activists like an Aaron Brockovich, because what I'm hoping is that they say, okay, fine, fine, white flag. We don't want to deal with this. And I think, you know what, if that's what you have to do to get women access, that's what we're going to do. It's too bad we've got to do it, but that's where we're at, truthfully. Okay. Now, we talked a little bit about some of the other things, condoms, uh, diaphragms. Uh, What is the um, effectiveness rate of Fexi versus some of these other non-hormonal uh, things. And I know too, like with the diaphragm, you're always told you should use it with spermicide. Condoms are better if you use them with spermicide. So how does, how does it rank in terms of effectiveness? So in the clinical study that we did with, because of the FDA, um, our effectiveness is 93%. However, here's what I want to say. In the study design that we agreed to with the FDA, when women did not use the product at all, it was counted as a failure. When women use the product after intercourse, it was counted as a failure. So why I'm saying that is that that's why it's 93%. I believe if we only counted the women who actually used it safely and correctly, our efficacy would be far higher than that. But the way that the protocol is designed with the FDA, a failure is a failure regardless. So I'm a little bit on a soapbox about that because it's, it's that if you use it correctly, the product is going to work. You, you, you should not use it after sex, right? You, so 
for me, so when I say 93%, it's still amazing because 23 million women are doing nothing. They're literally not using anything. Now, there is a misnomer. Most people think that condoms are 99% effective when in fact, the truth of it is, condoms are 85% effective. And the tough thing about diaphragms, I will be candid, is that I know some people love their diaphragms and I think, great, I really do. I'm, I'm an advocate for women taking control of what makes themselves work. However, the tough part is that right now, spermicides on the market all have an ingredient called minoxidil 9. And that ingredient has a black box warning. And in most of the world, it's banned completely because that ingredient is a detergent. It doesn't have the same safe ingredients like Bexy. That detergent tears at the epithelial lining of the vaginal cavity. It's banned in most of the world because that tearing increases transmission of HIV. Now, some women can tolerate it in the US, but over time, it thins the vaginal wall and it increases infection. It's just not great for women to use that long-term, frankly. So that's why we feel so good about Fexi. If you're going to use something non-hormonal, one, women don't control condoms. And most of the women I talk to say that even if they want to, sometimes they don't win the condom negotiation. And these are kittens. These are powerful women. And women say they don't really like condoms either. Their male partner doesn't like condoms. And so the condom part is always tough for me because it's not in control of the woman's hands. You know, that's why Fexi, I think, is far is a much better choice for women because they're empowered with their own control. So but there are, to your point, I mean, diaphragms are there and if women want to use them. But we have found a lot of diaphragm users that have tried Fexi and have basically said, this is quicker and easier. And I put a little sexy applicator in my purse and I don't have to walk around with my diaphragm. Mm -hmm. And, and not that these women are ashamed of their diaphragm. They're not, but it's just easier and discreet to have a little applicator in their pocket. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah. And as you said too, um, women aren't in control of condoms and this, and the Fexi just sounds so much easier, quicker, faster, like, Oh, just let me run out and do this and I'll be right back. And yes. yeah. Agreed. Okay. So now I want to ask a little bit too about the um, Fexi preventing chlamydia and gonorrhea. That sounds like a great added feature. Like what other birth control can do that? And I, I believe I read that um, the product is being tested for that right now. Is It's in trials for that now. Is that right? It is. So we're doing this investigational phase three study, by the way. So this isn't a concept. It's not phase one. It's not phase two. We are already enrolling patients in a phase three study. Our enrollment will be done at the end of this year, 2021. We'll be able to have top line data to read out in the second quarter of 2022. And so what's so important is the CDC has said for the sixth year in a row, both chlamydia and gonorrhea are on the rise. Chlamydia is 1.8 million cases in the U.S., and it's the number one diagnosed and prescribed infectious disease, not just sexually, infectious disease in the United States. And gonorrhea is antibiotic resistant and there's 600,000 cases. So we're the only product that will have the indications for prevention of chlamydia and gonorrhea. And so the FDA gave us a fast track review, six month review. So instead of 12 months, it'll be six months. And they've given us something called Qualified Infectious Disease Prevention, QIDP, which gives us five additional years exclusivity in the marketplace. So no competitors will be able to come out for five additional years. So those two indications, I have to tell you, to me, is what's going to 
it's really going to change the quality of life for women because when women get infected with chlamydia, 30% of the time it recurs. And if it's not treated, it causes a lot of issues. I mean, it can cause pelvic inflammatory disease. It can eventually cause infertility. They're serious. So we're excited that we're doing, and no other company is doing this because it's truthfully for some big pharma companies, you know, a billion dollar opportunity isn't even that big, as crazy as that sounds. It's really not that big, you know? And, and for us, it's incredible because we want to be the company that says innovation matters. And it's not just that women are half of this population. It's that women are the access for all of these humans. We make the world go round for the men and the children and everybody in our life. Why shouldn't we have innovation? So that's why I'm excited to be part of this. That's pretty amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all this. I guess to wrap up, my last question is, do you have any advice for women who've just been diagnosed with breast cancer and they're worried about their jobs, their loved ones, their lives? What, uh, what would you say to them? I would say it's a moment in time when you look inside of your core and really get comfortable with your core values and your core values, not obvious things, my family, my God, my health, the unobvious core values that are, why do I matter on the planet? Why really? What are the contributions that I need to make, whether it is as a caregiver, whether it's as a contributor to your community, to your kids, but, but really take the moment to say, I need to become a priority on my own priority list. I need to put myself first because it's not selfish. Because when I put myself first, everybody else benefits. And when you get that diagnosis, I believe it's an opportunity to put yourself first and to know that you've got to invest in yourself in a way that many women have never done. And there's only two things we can control, what we feed our mind and what we feed our body. So it's either garbage in and garbage out, or it's amazing aspirational in and amazing aspirational out. And it has to not just be feeding yourself well and walking to be healthy. It has to be the rhetoric you feed your brain. It has to be your ability to really challenge all the negativity that society says, the odds that people put on your survival and your ability to beat it, even the doctors. You have to get square with your own head to say, look, I know that I, however powerful you think you are or strong you think you are, or however unpowerful or not strong you think you are, that you have to sit down with yourself and say, look, I owe it. I owe it to this vessel that I've been given on this planet to do everything I can to fight because I'm worth it. It is the one chance for women to really love themselves in ways that we always put ourselves second, right? We're raised to be pleasers and mediators and martyrs. And so one, it's that personal justification of to put yourself first. And it's so hard for women to do it, but from a job standpoint, the one thing that I would encourage women to do, and I, I think a lot of people don't agree with me. In fact, I know a lot of people don't agree with me. I was radically transparent and direct with my chairman right away out of the gate. 
And I told him everything, everything, instead of hiding it and instead of waiting, instead of worrying, and instead of thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I forgot. I eliminated all of that. I didn't want any negative worry, right? I already had enough negative cells and energy in my body because of cancer. So I literally called him up and said, I need to meet with you in person. I've been diagnosed with cancer. Here's what's happening. Here's my treatment. And it, I was very businesslike. Now I was sad, but I was very businesslike. I've identified, I'm going to get three opinions. I'm going to choose the right opinion for me. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to get to the other side. I intend to continue working. I may need to adjust my schedule. I'd like to know that you have my back. And I can tell you, it's really hard for people when you're telling them you've got this diagnosis and you say, I'd like to know you have my back. What kind of a monster is going to say, well, I'm not so sure that I do. If you make them part of the solution, you make them part of the equation, you make them part of your team and your tribe, even if, by the way, you never would do that otherwise, and you don't even think they want to be in your tribe or your team, humanity prevails and you should use it to your advantage. And you should tell them everything and make them stand up and be good human beings because 99% of the time it works. Now, there may be some women, which is unfortunate, and we should make a voodoo doll of their bosses, that if their boss isn't a human, that's going to get behind him. But I believe being unbelievably candid and transparent and say all of it right down to once you get your diet, once you know the medication, here's the chemo that I'm on. And by the way, they probably don't want to know that, but you tell them anyway, because then you're eliminating all of that doubt and all of those secrets. It's so much better because then you've unburdened yourself and you can worry about fighting cancer, not about what you're worrying about, what they're thinking, right? I just think it was the best approach. And the women who I've known that have done it, They've unburdened themselves from the secret, you know, and it seems to be better. Mm -hmm. That's, I personally agree with you because I think otherwise it just leaves all this opportunity for people to imagine things. You can imagine what's going on with you. And in most cases it's wrong and it's much worse than reality. So I, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, Sandra, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, your insights, your outlook. I wish you much success with this because I believe something like this has been needed on the market for a long time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been really lovely. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.